Well, what a sweet expression of devotion from the heart of a loyal servant of the king. Love that song. Glad we can sing that together to our King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Well, take your Bibles and turn back to 2 Peter, and we're going to be looking at the end of chapter 2 today, and Lord willing, finish up uh, this section of uh, Peter's second letter to the churches there in Asia Minor. And if you thought last week was heavy and sobering, uh, we're about to go from the frying pan into the fire. And things heat up here at the end of this chapter. And so let's read it together, Second Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 17. Peter writes, These are springs without water and mist driven by a storm for whom the black darkness has been reserved. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error, promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. For if after they've escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first For it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. It has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit and a sow after washing returns to wallowing in the mire. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this privilege and honor, a blessing that we have to study your word together as your people And uh, this is just one of those portions of your word that's not easy to hear. Um, It's not easy to get our minds around. Um, And more importantly, it's, it's, it's not easy to apply. And so we just ask, Lord, that your spirit would illuminate our minds now to understand why he inspired Peter to write these words and exactly what they mean and how they apply to our lives Lord, help us to sort through some of the complications in this text and that we would leave here with a very clear understanding of of these verses and with some truth for the road, truth that we can put into practice in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, reading commentaries plays an essential role in my study process for preparing sermons every week. For example, I have about 15 to 20 commentaries on 2 Peter that I consult each week in order to help my, get my mind around uh, the verse or passage I'm going to exposit next. And over the years, certain commentators, commentators have become treasured friends, even though I never met them personally, some of which I've never met. Um, but I've grown to appreciate them and trust them like Warren Wearsby, for example, or Chuck Swindoll, or D. Edmund Hebert, or John Stott, Kent Hughes, and of course, John MacArthur. I'm grateful to have the MacArthur New Testament commentary set at my um, access there, which includes all of John's masterful expositions of every book in the New Testament. And I usually leave him for last. After I read everyone else, um, I'll read him, and I consistently find that what he has to say to be the most informative and influential in my understanding and fleshing out of a text of Scripture. 
For example, here is how he began his commentary on what Peter said here in verses 10 through 22. And I quote, Faithful shepherds protect their sheep. They work hard day after day to instruct, reprove, correct, and train God's people, leading their flocks on the path of truth. Like the good shepherd himself, they stand guard even when spiritual enemies threaten. Cowardice is not a consideration for them, neither is compromise. After all, they have received a divine commission to shepherd the flock of God until the chief shepherd appears. Because they love the truth and genuinely care for the health of their congregations, genuine shepherds are always leery of false teaching. They recognize the deadly nature of Satan's lies, spiritual fabrications designed to deceive, divide, and ultimately destroy God's people. That's why faithful pastors proclaim truth and expose error with such tenacity. They realize eternity is at stake. And then he continues, he says, Godly church leaders take an aggressive stand against false teachers and their doctrines. They cannot embrace or tolerate error in the name of love, nor can they simply ignore it. Instead, they are called to refute those who contradict. You may be familiar with that phrase, to refute those who contradict. That was one of the criteria for being an elder that Paul gave to Titus who he had tasked with appointing elders in all the churches that Paul had planted uh, on the island of Crete. And after giving Titus a list of qualifications for elders, he went on to explain the reason why pastors and elders must be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. You can read it with me if you'd like. Just turn back a few pages to the left in your Bibles. Titus chapter 1, verse 10. Titus chapter 1, verse 10. Paul says, or as Paul said to Titus, he said, For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. One of them, themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. This testimony is true for this reason. Reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith, not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. And then notice verse 16. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. Paul and Peter were both adamant about protecting the members of God's flock from the deceptive, destructive influence of false teachers. And Paul's words to Titus sound very similar to Peter's words in this passage that we're going to be examining together this morning. And like Paul, Peter cared about his readers, and he didn't want to see them led astray by false teachers, and that's why he dedicated a third of this letter to exposing who they are and how they operate. And he didn't mince any words. This is some of the most scathing, straightforward, in-your-face language found anywhere in the entire New Testament. We said that this chapter can be divided into three sections. Verses 1 through 3 are a denunciation of false teachers. And there Peter provided us eight warning signs 
uh, of a false teacher so he could spot one when we see one or hear one. And then verses 4 through 9 are the destruction of false teachers. And there Peter weaved together the two themes of divine destruction and divine deliverance to confirm that God is able to rescue the godly while judging the ungodly. And then we began last week looking at verses 10 through 22 where Peter just describes the, the extreme depravity of false teachers and why they're so deserving of God's wrath. And in this description that he gave of false teachers, he exposed three sinful traits in verses 10 through 16 that mark the lives and ministries of false teachers. Remember what they are? Pride, lust, and greed. So we need to listen to their voices. We need to follow their eyes. We need to discern their hearts. And so now in verses 17 to 22, Peter went on to provide two more distinguishing traits or characteristics of false teachers. What are they? Number one, false teachers promise false hope. False teachers promise false hope. That's verses 17 through 19. And then secondly, false teachers prove to be false believers who produce false believers. False teachers prove to be false believers who produce false believers. That's verses 20 through 22. So let's look at these two traits that distinguish, once again, who's a false teacher from one who's not a false teacher. So first of all, false teachers promise false hope. Notice verse 17. These are springs without water and mist driven by a storm. So Peter compared these false teachers to two things that are precious commodities in the arid climate of the Middle East. The first is a spring or a well that promises to provide much-needed refreshment to weary travelers. And the second is a cloud that promises to provide much-needed rain to wilting crops. And so thirsty people hang on the words of false teachers hoping to find refreshment for their souls. But false teachers are are a total disappointment because they're, they're springs and wells with no water and clouds with no rain. In fact, that's how Jude describes it. Uh, Jude 12, again, the companion uh, uh, epistle here to 2 Peter is Jude, Jude 12. He says, these are men who are hidden reeves in your love feasts when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves, clouds without water carried along by the winds. So like a rainless cloud and like a a waterless well, uh, false teachers promise something they don't deliver. They're all show, no substance. And so false teachers are deceptive in their appearance, sort of like a mirage in the desert, right? You're walking through a desert longing for uh, some water to drink or a a cool place to sit in the shade of a a tree, and you see this mirage, and you go running, rushing towards it, hoping uh, to be refreshed, and and, and then you realize it's it's, it's a mirage. It's it's not real. It's not true. False teachers are, are broken cisterns that hold no water. And so they leave their their followers spiritually parched and dry. And the reason is, is while they pretend to be ministers of the gospel, they don't share the gospel. They, they, They don't have any good news to offer, and their ministry has the exact opposite effect of the ministry of the one they claim to represent. Of course, that's Jesus Christ himself. 
who said to the woman at the well in John 4, verse 13, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Jesus also said in John 7, verse 27, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And so the reason why false teachers' ministries leave people thirsting for more is because their ministry is not focused on Christ. It's focused on themselves. And the only kind of ministry that will ever satisfy your soul is a ministry that is, that is Bible-based and Christ-centered, where the gospel is clearly and regularly proclaimed. Because that's what we need to hear. That is the, the longing of every human soul. Notice how that verse ends. He says there are springs without water and mist driven by a storm for whom the black darkness has been reserved. And again, now Peter's getting specific in regards to the judgment and destruction that he has been referring to throughout this entire chapter. Um, verse, verse 1, uh, talking about bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Verse 3, their judgment from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. Verse 9, that the unrighteous are under punishment for the day of judgment. Verse 12, they're like unreasoning, unreasoning animals um, who are to be captured and killed reviling where they have no knowledge will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed, suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong. So here we find the specific wage, if you will, or uh, punishment for false teachers, and that is spending eternity in hell. He said, "There, for whom the black darkness has been reserved. Notice uh, back in verse four, if you remember, he says, for if God did not spare angels, when they sin, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. So false teachers share the fate of the fallen angels. They'll be cast into hell alongside the angels who rebelled against God. And we see this again in Jude, Jude 6. The angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. And then in verse 13 of Jude, wild waves of the sea casting up their own shame like foam, wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. It's interesting that the Bible describes hell as a place of eternal, i.e. forever, eternal conscious torment where both darkness and fire coexist. Just listen to the words of Jesus himself who spoke more about hell than he did about heaven. Mark 8, 12, the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness in that place where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 13, 41, the son of man will send forth his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness and will throw them into the furnace of fire in that place where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew twenty two thirteen. Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And by the, fa by the fact that there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, that means people are not being annihilated. 
They're not going out of existence. This is an ongoing, uh, eternal, conscious torment. Matthew 25, 41, then they will also say to those on the left, he, he will also say to those on the left, depart from me, accursed one, into the temporary fire? No, the what? Eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Now, what a contrast. This, the, 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 the horror of hell to the hope of heaven that Peter said believers have If you remember in the first letter, chapter 1, verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. That's our hope as believers. We have the hope of heaven rather than the horrors of hell to look forward to. Why do false teachers deserve to be put out into the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth? Verse 18, for speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error. You could say it this way, that they, false teachers typically use big fancy words and, and they sound so profound and they seem so confident in what they say. And they're oftentimes gifted communicators who hold their audiences spellbound with their lofty words, their, their showy presentation. But when it's all said and done, they, they've actually not said anything at all. There's nothing of substance to take away with. It's just a whole lot of hype whole lot of feel good for the moment. But they usually possess a, a personal charm, a charismatic appeal that, that people, and especially according to the scriptures, vulnerable women find attractive. And despite their empty rhetoric that they're really not saying anything at all, they hook people by appealing to their fleshly desires And perhaps the way they do that is offering them a religion in which they can continue to enjoy their lustful pleasures without restraint. Not having to leave behind your sin is, sounds like a good deal, doesn't it? You get your get out of hell free card, but you get to keep living the way you want to live. You can play both sides in the middle. And I think that's particularly appealing to new converts or young believers who have yet to become established in the Christian faith and may be struggling to overcome the the pagan practices out of which they were saved. That may be who Peter had in mind when he said, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error. It's no surprise that the members of false religions and, and cults Uh, often congregate outside evangelistic rallies waiting to pounce on those that just made a profession of faith as they walk out the doors with their follow-up material in their hands and and all of a sudden they're like, hey, you should read this and hey, you should come to our, 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 uh, our, our lesson or our study. And of course, they don't know any better being babes in Christ. And so like carnivorous animals, false teachers prey on the weakest members of the herd. 
Others would suggest that those who barely escape from the ones who live in error may not refer to saved people, but unsaved people who, who just have a lot of guilt and anxiety and they're looking for some kind of relief and they have all sorts of problems in their lives. They want to turn over a new leaf and they're looking for spiritual answers and so they're extremely vulnerable and easily exploited by the manipulative ministries of false teachers who don't share the gospel with them but they condone their sinful lifestyle. They promise them freedom while they themselves are, are slaves of corruption. The false teachers hold out the, the hope of freedom to their followers, but it's a warped kind of freedom. The Bible teaches that, that Christians are freed from the power of sin, which means we no longer are, are slaves to sin. Romans chapter 6, verse 6, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. And so guess what? If you're in Christ, you don't have to sin anymore. You have the ability to do what's right. Before you had no choice but to do what's wrong. And so we are free not to sin. Whereas false teachers say that as Christians we are free, what? To sin. Because we're no longer under the law. We live under grace and all of our sin is covered by the blood of Christ. And this is the, the classic antinomian position, the anti-law, where you can just kind of do whatever you'd like to do. In fact, um, the more you sin, the more you get to experience the grace of God. And that was Paul's concern when he was highlighting, emphasizing the amazing grace of God in Romans chapter 5. He said, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And he didn't want anybody to think, well, if that's the case, I want to experience as much of God's grace as possible, so I'm just going to just keep sinning more, and then I'll receive his grace more. And then Paul immediately shut that door and said, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Peter said something similar in 1 Peter chapter 2. You may remember this, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 16. He said, act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as a bond slave of God. In other words, don't, don't use your freedom as a cover for sin, as an excuse to sin. Like, hey, I'm in Christ, I'm free to do that or that, when really it's just a, an excuse for you to give in to your flesh. And for the false teachers, this was just a version of theology that they created to justify their own sinful behavior. Peter said they themselves were enslaved to certain habits or perhaps substances from which they're powerless to break free, promising freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption, for by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. Paul said in Romans 6, 16, why, why, why do you keep giving the members of your body over to sin? Offer them to righteousness. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? In 1 Corinthians 6, 12, Paul said this, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. There's some helpful, pointed 
questions on the back of your outline this morning, and one of which is, are you a slave to anything? Is there, is there anything in your life that you're enslaved to that controls you, that you have a hard time saying no to, that you keep giving into over and over and over again? See, it's easy to take pot shots at false teachers, right, and to consider the speck in their eye. Lots of specks going on here. Peter's pointing out lots of specks, right? But, hey, what about the log in our own eye? And that's why I challenged you last week, hey, consider the pride and the lust and the greed in your own heart. Don't just cast stones at the false teachers, but deal with this, the, the log in your own eye. Then you'll see even more clearly, right, to discern uh, a false teacher and their false teaching. And the reason why, by the way, they, false teachers and their followers are enslaved to sin is because they don't preach Christ. Because only Jesus can set a person free from sin. Jesus said in John 8, 34, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. If the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. And for those of you who are in Christ, you know that to be true. That he delivered you, right, from a lot of those old sinful thought patterns and practices. And not that you don't still struggle with sin. Even Paul, uh, the the godliest man who ever lived apart from Christ on this earth, right, um, said he, he hated the fact that he did the things he didn't want to do. And he didn't do the things he knew he should do. And who will deliver me from this body of death that I live in? This, this new nature incarcerated in this sinful flesh that just, you know, got really good at sinning. And, man, I just want to be delivered from that. And who can do that? There's only one person, that's Jesus Christ. And so the first distinguishing trait or characteristic of false teachers here is that they promise false hope. False hope and false freedom. Secondly, false teachers prove to be false believers who produce false believers. They prove to be false believers who produce false believers. Notice Verse 20, for if after they've escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. I think the first thing that should come to our minds as we look at this verse is who is the they or the them? Because he, he's been talking about people who are barely escaping from the ones who live in error that the false teachers are going after, they're targeting, but then it's talking about false teachers. Uh, for if after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, they're again entangled in them and they're overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. So who's they and them? Well, there's a debate among Bible scholars whether these last three verses refer to false teachers or the people they seduce and entice. And the fact that the entire chapter is addressing false teachers seems to imply that false teachers are in view here, along with the fact that the word overcome is repeated in 19 and 20, 
uh, he's referring to uh, false teachers, for by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. And then he says they are again entangled in them and are overcome. So it seems like he's referring to false teachers there. But at the same time, the fact that the word escaped is repeated in verse 18 and 20 suggests that Peter may have had the followers of false teachers in mind. Verse 18, he's talking about barely escaping from the ones who live in error, uh, for if after they have escaped the defilement of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior. So you see there's a kind of a complicated, who, who is he talking to now? Who is he referencing? Well, I would simply say this. I don't think we have to be dogmatic because either way, what Peter said in these three verses applies to false teachers and their followers. It's not an either or, it's a both and. They both were seeking to escape the contamination of this world through, through some sort of religious experience, which even included a relationship with Jesus, but on their own terms. Apparently, they had come to an intellectual understanding of the gospel. They had a knowledge of Jesus Christ. Perhaps they made a profession of faith in Christ. Maybe they raised their hand and they walked an aisle and uh, maybe uh, you know, asked Jesus to come into their heart and they got baptized and they joined a church and they began attending Bible studies and they began to see some changes in their lives. And so they assumed and everyone else assumed that they were truly saved, but whatever decision or commitment that they made never took root. And the fact that they eventually defected from the faith and fell back into their old ways proved that they were never genuinely born again. They may have enjoyed a short-lived reformation, but never experienced a spirit-induced regeneration. They merely had a a superficial behavior modification rather than a supernatural spiritual transformation. Now, I played my hand. You know that I don't believe that Peter was talking about people who, who, who lose their salvation. Because if you read this, right, just initial reading, uh, superficial reading, you're like, whoa, wow, it look, looks like these people were saved and they, they're not saved anymore. They, they lost their salvation. Well, the evidence that Peter wasn't referring to carnal Christians, as they're often referred to, fleshly Christians who lose their salvation, but instead nominal Christians, Christians in name only, who had never truly repented and believed is that they were not overcomers like the Apostle John wrote about. He uses the word here, uh, overcome. They, in fact, rather than being overcomers, they were overcome. 1 John 5, 4, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world and is not overcome by the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. In fact, you may remember that Jesus, when he was addressing the seven churches in Revelation, Revelation chapter 2 and 3, seven times for every church that he addressed it, he ended his letter to that church with the phrase, he who overcomes. And he was addressing the, the true believers in that church to give them hope that, hey, if you hang in there and you overcome, that will demonstrate that you're truly saved. 
And so that's a, really a, a, a synonym for being a Christian. It's, it's to be an overcomer. And so this, this is a reference to the perseverance of the saints, or better, the preservation of the saints. Um, and this is, we talk about the doctrine of eternal security. Once saved, always saved, right? You can't lose your salvation. We, we know that based on verses like John 10, 27, where Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And then Romans 8, verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, God foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, and these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also glorified. And these whom he justified, uh, he, he, he also called, he justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. In other words, God is the one controlling the whole process of salvation from justification to glorification. And if you are truly justified, you will be glorified and sanctified in, the, in between. Philippians 1.6, Paul said, I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you, you didn't start the good work, you didn't choose Christ, he chose you, right? He, God began this good work in you, he will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Jude 24, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to him be the power and the glory and the honor forever and ever, amen. So we see God's sovereignty in our salvation, in our justification, our sanctification, and our glorification. That, that salvation is all of God's work. But we also have these verses that talk about our part, the part we play in persevering as a believer in this world. Matthew 10, 22, it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. Romans 2, 7, those who by perseverance and doing good seek for glory and honor, immortality, and eternal life. Colossians 1, he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach, if indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you've heard. Hebrews 3, 14, for we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. So all these verses that I just read focus on our responsibility, right? So you have God's sovereignty and you have man's responsibility. So who is, who's, who's the one responsible for getting you to heaven with your salvation intact, with your faith intact? God and you. It's both, right? And again, this is the mystery of the Christian life, the, the paradox of the Christian life. That it's a, another both and scenario there. Ultimately, God will get the glory. None of us can get to heaven and pat ourselves on the back and go, wow, I made it. Well, that guy didn't make it. I was more devoted and more committed than he was. No, it's by the grace of God that you made it. And again, this is where the doctrine of election becomes very practical because if God 
saves you, if he's the one that saves you, then you can't do anything to lose your salvation. It's like, okay, God saved me, but I can undo it. Really? You're power, more powerful than God? No, if God saves you, you can't do anything to lose your salvation. God will ensure that you persevere to the end. And so the question remains, well, who are these people then? What category do these people that Peter's describing, where do they fit in my theology? Well, I think there's, there's plenty of other verses in the Bible that help clarify who Peter was referring to in these verses. I think they are those who claim to know Jesus and, and do many things in Jesus' name, but who Jesus doesn't know. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to you, to you I never knew you depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Where are they departing to? Into that outer darkness. And the point is, not everyone who claims to be a Christian, not everybody who thinks they're a Christian is a Christian. And they'll be shocked, thinking their salvation was secure to find out they were a fraud, they were a phony, they were a counterfeit. I think these are the tares among the wheat. Matthew chapter 13. You may remember that parable that Jesus uh, told in Matthew 13. Verse 24, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field and while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares become evident, became evident also. The slaves of the landowner came and said to him, sir, did you, did you not sow seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, an enemy has done this. The slave said to him, do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, no, for while you are gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them, allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up and gather the wheat into my barn. And Jesus went on to interpret that parable in verse 36 of Matthew 13. And basically he said, yeah, that enemy is Satan. While, while Christ and his servants are casting seed uh, in the local churches, preaching the word of God, true believers, people are coming to know Christ, they're, they're sprouting up, true faith is sprouting up everywhere, but at the same time, Satan is coming in behind that and sowing seeds of unbelief, false believers. And so there's always, in any local church, wheat, and weeds, true believers and false believers, sometimes sitting right next to each other in the same church. I think these are the goats as opposed to sheep. Matthew 25, you remember verse 31, but when the Son of Man comes in his glory and the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne and the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he will put the sheep on the right and the goats on the left and the sheep go to heaven and the goats go to hell. 
And you say, well, how do they figure out who's a goat and who's a sheep? Well, it's, it's really who is faithful to serve those in need around them. And it's not that you earn your way to heaven by being a good person and doing good deeds, but you're ultimately demonstrating that you have a heart, the heart of Christ because you're doing these things as unto Christ, as if it was Christ. And so you're proving that you are in Christ. I think they're the rocky soil and the weedy soil. According to the parable that Jesus told in Luke chapter 8, the, the, the sower went out and sowed seed and it landed on four different types of soil. The, 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 the road soil where the birds just came down immediately and scooped it up and flew away. And so that's just the, the people that just outright reject the gospel. Then you've got the good soil where it, it, it sinks down deep, that seed sinks down deep and it, and it grows up and produces a lot of fruit. That's the true believer. And then you've got these two soils in between, in the middle there. You've got the rocky soil and you've got the thorny soil or the weedy soil. Well, who do they represent? Well, listen to what Jesus said. This is Matthew, or excuse me, Luke 8, verse 13. Those on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy. And yet they have no firm root. They believe for a while and in time of temptation fall away. The seed which fell among the thorns, these are the ones who have heard. And as they go on their way, they are choked with worries and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to maturity. They're fruitless. And again, Jesus said, you will know them by their fruits or lack thereof. And I think Peter perhaps had in mind this parable talking about becoming entangled, just like weeds and thorns tangle, you get tangled up in those things. Um, that's what he's uh, perhaps thinking about here. And again, Peter was listening to all these parables and all these uh, stories that Jesus was telling. These were in his heart and mind as he, as he penned this letter in Second Peter. Um, these are perhaps the person who had the demon cast out of them, but the demon returned with seven others. You remember Luke 11, verses 24 um, through 26, when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places, seeking rest and not finding any. It says, I will return to my house from which I came, and when it comes, it finds it swept and put in order. In other words, there was some kind of house cleaning in a person's life, but there was not the replacement of Christ. There wasn't, Christ had not come into their life, if you will, was not dwelling within them. And so what happened? Then it goes and takes along seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they go in and live there, and the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. Isn't that exactly what Paul said, or Peter said in verse 20? The last state has become worse for them than the first. What do you think he's thinking about? I think he's thinking about all these examples that Jesus gave throughout his ministry as Peter was walking with him and learning from him. And, and Peter's bringing all this to bear in analyzing the state, the true nature of false teachers. I think these are the so-called brothers that, that we're supposed to treat as unbelievers. Matthew chapter 18, verse 17 Speaking about church discipline here, 
If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, if you've uh, pursued an individual, uh, somebody who's professing faith in Christ, but he continues to live in open, unrepentant sin, but a- and after many appeals, he continues to reject the truth and live in sin, then you are to treat him like an unbeliever. Why? Because he's acting like an unbeliever. And Paul said it very directly uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 when he was confronting the church there for not addressing a sinful situation in their church. He said this in verse 11, but actually I wrote to you not to associate with any, what? So-called brother. If he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. And then maybe the most helpful verse is, of course, 1 John 2, 19. They went out from us, but they were not really, what? Of us. For if they had been of us, they would have, what? Remained with us, but they went out so that it would be shown that they are all not of us. I know every one of you probably has somebody that you know that there was a time in your life where you were sure that they were saved. They were, perhaps uh, you considered them a brother and sister in Christ, um, but they've since walked away. And, and they've, they're living in sin. And they have no interest in the things of Christ. How are you to process that? How are you to understand who they are and what's happened to them? Well, it seems that they were not really one of us. If they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out so that it would be shown that they're not all of us. Now, I think we need to make a distinction between a backslider and an apostate because there's a difference One helpful commentator, John Phillips, said this, a backslider is genuinely saved. He might get away from the Lord, but he's not happy in his worldly wanderings. Eventually, either he will be brought, excuse me, he'll be brought back to the Lord by means of the rod of divine chastisement, or he will die a premature death. In other words, the sin unto death, right? 1 John 5, 16 talks about that where God might take out one of, uh, one of his two kids who just continues to stumble and continues to bring dishonor or shame on his name. He might just take that, that kid out. Uh, he did that in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 when the believers were dishonoring Christ in the communion. It says some of them were sick and some of them slept. Some of them died. So that's a backslider. An apostate, however, despite his profession of faith, has never been saved at all, so he has nothing to which to return. Peter was a backslider. Judas was an apostate. There's a very helpful case study, by the way. You could write this down. Matthew 26, 75 uh, to Matthew 27, 5. And because there's a chapter break, it would be easy to miss this, I think, brilliant contrast that Matthew made in his gospel, and this is after Judas betrayed Jesus and Peter denied Jesus, 
It says this, in, within a span of five verses, it says, Peter went out and wept bitterly, and Judas went away and hanged himself. Big difference in how they both responded to their failure. And Peter was a backslider who returned, and Judas was an apostate who there was no return. And then notice how Peter repeats that last phrase there in verse 20. It says, the last state has become worse for them than the first, for it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. I just think he sensed the gravity of this situation and he wanted to repeat what he just said in the previous verse, to, to, to make sure we don't miss this, that, that, that false teachers and their followers would have been better off having never been exposed to the truth of the gospel than having embraced, embraced it, but then rejected it. And this is hard to get our minds around, but this is, I think, what Peter was intending here, that it is better to be an unbeliever than a professing believer who walks away from the faith. Why? Because an unbeliever still has the hope of salvation. But someone who walks away from Christ has rejected the only means of salvation. And we don't have time to look at this passage, but you can maybe do this with your grow group or with your family. Uh, Look up Hebrews chapter 6, and there there's a passage that really uh, has created lots of arguments over the years. It it sounds like somebody who was truly saved but then lost their salvation. Again, one of those tricky texts um, that you have to interpret in light of the rest of Scripture. But the way the writer says it in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26, for if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the spirit of grace? It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And not to open up a whole other can of worms, but there are some other verses, there are some verses in Scripture, particularly the Gospels, that came out of the mouth of Jesus himself, that there seems to be degrees of punishment in hell. Different degrees of punishment in hell. Where he said something like, hey, if the, if the, to, the, to, the, to his hometown, hey, if, if the miracles that were done here were done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented. But you didn't. And so you know what? Your punishment is going to be greater than the people who lived in Sodom and Gomorrah. So those who hear the truth and understand the truth and and yet still turn away from it will face far greater judgment than those who never hear the truth. And then Peter just, I don't even know if it would be appropriate to call it a cherry on top of the Sunday, but doesn't taste much like a Sunday, but notice verse 22, it has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit and a sow after washing returns to wallowing in the mire. 
So he concludes this graphic description of false teachers and their followers with, with two vivid analogies that reveal their true nature. And he likened them to dogs and to pigs, two of the most despised animals in the Bible. And you got to get little Fifi out of your mind right now, your little house pet dog, right? Because that's not what Peter had in mind here. Dogs were rarely kept as household pets in Bible times. They were dirty, they were diseased, they were dangerous, they were scavengers. In fact, Paul said to, about the Judaizers, he said, beware the dogs. That was not a compliment. And pigs, obviously, were considered unclean. And when Jesus told the story of the, the prodigal son, there was no lower place in society that you could come to than to be in a pigsty with pigs feeding swine. So he had, he had, he had reached the bottom of the barrel there. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 6, do not give what is holy to dogs and do not throw your pearls before swine or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. So you don't want anybody calling you a dog or a pig, you know, in, in, in biblical terms. That's not a compliment. And so Peter quoted Proverbs 26, 11, he says, uh, which says this, like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. And I'm sure if you've had a dog at some point in your life, you have had that revolting experience of watching that dog throw up in your kitchen, on your rug, in your backyard. And then what does he do? He goes back and eats it. And even though what they ate made them sick, they go right back to it and eat it again. And before you think oh, how gross, how disgusting, how many times has sin left you feeling guilty and may have even made you literally puke. But you go back and do it again anyway. Peter also referred to a pig that, after he gets cleaned up, goes right back to his pen and starts rolling around in the mud again. And again, before you say, well, what a, what a, what a stupid animal. Well, how many times have you confessed your sin to God and asked him to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness and not long after you go right back to wallow in that same sin again. See, Peter's point is simple that a dog returns to his vomit, a pig returns to his mire because that's their nature. That's what dogs do. That's what pigs do. They'll always behave according to their nature. Dogs act like dogs. Pigs act like pigs, and unbelievers act like unbelievers. And again, Peter was making the point that false teachers and their followers had not experienced a change in their nature. There may have been some external changes, but they had never been truly born again, nor had they received a new nature. They, they were not new creatures in Christ, like it says in 2 Corinthians 5.17. And so they weren't what they claimed to be and they, or, or what they appear to be. And they eventually return to what they've been all along. Their final state reveals that they were never true believers to begin with. So how about you? 
Have you been born again? Have you begun a, a new nature in Christ? Or, can it be said of you that, that, that you, you are now a new creature in Christ? The old has gone away and the new has come? Have you sincerely turned away from your life of sin and, 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 and are you trusting in Christ's work on the cross as the only way that you can be made right with God? Just because you know about Christ doesn't mean you know Christ. Just because you associate with Christians doesn't mean you are a Christian. And so that's why Paul's words at the beginning of this letter exhorting us to make sure that we are not counterfeit Christians is so applicable to us, especially today. 2 Peter 1.10, therefore be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, which are all that list of godly characteristics, right, moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, love. As you're, if you're practicing these qualities, you will never stumble, for in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. Peter wants you to be sure. I want you to be sure. Hopefully you want to be sure. <laughs> that you are a true believer. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this text that's not uh, an easy one to handle or to swallow. Um, but I just pray that your spirit would take uh, your words and apply them to each one of our hearts and use them to help people come to Christ and become like Christ. Whatever the need of that soul is today, you do your work for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.